Hey, it's Anna Sale, and I want to thank you for listening to Death, Sex, and Money, where I explore the big questions and hard choices that are often left out of polite conversation. You can hear new episodes ad-free every week on Amazon Music, where you can find Death, Sex, and Money and all of your Slate favorites without the ads. I want to thank you for listening and for all your support as we at Death, Sex, and Money have made our move to Slate. Your stories, voice memos, and emails have meant so much to the team. As part of this transition, there's a new way to support our show financially at Slate, our new home. And you'll get something special in return. Subscribe to Slate Plus, and you'll not only support our work on death, sex, and money, you'll get access to new benefits, including listening to us and all of the other great shows Slate makes, like Slow Burn and Dakota Ring, without any ads or sponsor breaks. To subscribe, just click Try Free at the top of the Death, Sex, and Money show page on Apple Podcasts or visit slate.com slash DSM plus to get access wherever you listen. Thanks. Hey, it's Anna. This week, we're sharing our episode with you with musician Raphael Sadiq. I recorded this in 2019 with him in person in New York City. I was just back from my second maternity leave, and believe me when I tell you, I was stoked. I have been a fan of his music since I was 12, going back to his days with the group Tony, Tony, Tony. And now, right now in 2023, Tony, Tony, Tony is back on tour for the first time in 25 years. So we thought it would be a good time to revisit this conversation and this episode that is filled with so many good grooves. Enjoy. I want people to walk into a place where I'm working at or where I live and just feel really warm. And I think that's a therapy for me, maybe because of the stuff I went through with my, you know, my family. And I don't need anything just dark. I really love the light. This is Death, Sex, and Money. The show from WNYC about the things we think about a lot and need to talk about more. I'm Anna Sale. Raphael Sadiq grew up in Oakland, California. He was just out of high school and hanging around a studio with friends when they got a call. It was a guy who was lining up musicians for Sheila E.'s band for her world tour with Prince. He said, is there anyone up there that can sing and dance and play bass? And that was a quote from Purple Rain. Can anybody sing and dance? Uh I went next day. I went to the audition. There was maybe 20 to 30 people outside, like bass players sort of dressed like Prince. Um, I had like 501s on, like a derby jacket. And I just remember somebody else had already got the gig. And when I started playing, they gave me the gig. Wow. And next thing you know, we're in Tokyo, open up for Prince, you know, singing Erotic City. When you were on your way home from that audition, did you know that your life had changed? I just remember I, I didn't need an unemployment check anymore. In the 35 years since, Raphael Sadiq has become an institution in American R&B music. As a bass player, singer, songwriter, and producer, he co-produced the song Cranes in the Sky with Solange. Cranes in the sky. 
and he won a Grammy for Love of My Life with Erica Badu in common. He was nominated for an Oscar last year for co-writing Mighty River with Mary J. Blige. And he changed sex forever when he made this song with D'Angelo. I have loved Rafael Sadiq since the late 80s, when he, his brother, and his cousin burst on the scene with their band, Tony, Tony, Tony. By then, he was already going by Rafael. He changed his name during that world tour with Prince and Sheila E. Rafael was born Charles Ray Wiggins. His family called him Ray. He's his mom and dad's only child together. His mom had three children before him. His dad had eight. So I was the mistake child. They called me the mistake child. The surprise. No, my dad said I was the mistake. One hundred percent. He he says it and laughs just like that. He like you were a mistake, boy. He said you were a good one, but you were definitely a mistake. So, when you're six years old, and you start playing bass, mm-hmm. why why the bass? Well, at, at six, I wasn't really playing the bass at that time. I think I was playing a, I was, I was playing a broom. <laughs> I, was, I, was, I was thinking a six-year-old boy no, trying to hold a bass. No, I was definitely <laughs> scraping a broom and the broomsticks all over the floor. My sister Janice used to hold like the, a lamp over my head and give me a spotlight. And I think what started me playing bass was a Motown record by Marvin Gaye, um, How Sweet It Is to Be Loved by You. That's when I identified it. I didn't know what the name of the, the instrument was called, but I kept hearing this instrument. And then my brother, Dwayne, at his house, he was playing guitar. So I just saw the bass. Like, that was the instrument I could play if I wanted to hang around Dwayne. How many years older than you is Dwayne? I think Dwayne is five years older than me. So you're like little brother trying to hang out with Oh, yeah. I was, they used to call me, um, they called me little old man because I was always hanging around older guys. Some guys, I was in a couple gospel quartet groups, so maybe at, when I really started playing around, you know, fourth, fifth grade, I was in I was in bands with guys that were already sixty years old. What would you wear when you were performing with these older men? Were, were you wearing clothes that were similar to what the older men were wearing? Yeah, I, I was wearing exact same suits they were wearing, except I could never uh, get my suits from the same place. You know, <laughs> yeah, you had to go to the boys' department. <laughs> I had to go to the boys' department to try to find a suit to match their suits. As a buck 15 kid, I look like a little little punk, but when I pick up the bass, she'd be like, who is that man? <laughs> who is that bad boy playing the bass? Bass is my heart. I'm, I'm, I'm a badass bass player, if I have to say. So I carried it with me all the time, so I know with the bass I can move the world. When you were a little boy, when you were going to church, was it, um, were you excited to go because of the music, or did you get something else out of it? 
I was only going for the music. I didn't. I didn't get anything else out of church. Uh, I did like the pastor. The pastor's name was Reverend Ed Nation. He looked exactly like Martin Luther King, and um, he was really nice. Um, he would always ask me if I loved the Lord. It's funny. Like that, I think that was his thing. When you walk out to church, he would stand by the door and he'd go like, "Do you still love the Lord?" You know, if he didn't see you in a while, you know, when you come back, you're like, "Do you still love the Lord?" How do you answer that question? You gotta say yes. <laughs> yes. You know, what I mean, that's what you're taught to say and do. Uh, yeah, I mean, I guess it was his way of saying, you know, you know, stay focused out there because you, you know, you have. For me, for me, church was, um, it, it, it replaced the idle time that you would have as a kid in a neighborhood like Oakland. In our neighborhood, we had to create stuff, so it was mainly trouble. It was like my friends were like, "Leave it to Beaver," like the the bad guy, like, you know, we always wanted Eddie? to eat. Yeah, Eddie. We had a bunch of Eddies. Not not too many not too many beavers. You were a young kid when you experienced loss for the first time. Um you lost your first sibling when you were seven? Yeah. Yeah, I lost Alvy. Alvy was, um, he was one of my brothers I looked up to. Even though I was seven, you know, you just, you know, I really looked up to him. How old was Alvy? Alvy was 27. And I remember my dad telling him that his friends weren't his really, weren't his friends. And and my brother looked at my dad and smiled. They looked alike. And he was saying, what you talking about, old man? And with a smile and my dad's looking, I'm telling you, they're not your friends. They're going to kill you. The next weekend, he they killed him. Rumor has it it was over like $12,000. He had $12,000 in his pocket. I'm sure the story's a little different from that. Um, they shot him like twice in the chest and one in the heart. And um remember my dad, we drove to the place where my brother's body was at. And when we got there, um, the gurney had came downstairs and they, and they pulled back the sheet so we could see his face. I don't remember looking, but my dad did. My dad is hard, you know. He's from Texas. He looked at my. He looked at my brother. He was like, "Yeah, that's him." And he looked at me. He said, "Let's go." And we got in the car, and and I'm sitting in the back seat, and I'm looking because I want to. I want. I want in my mind. I want to kill this guy. You know, that's all I could think of. I'm gonna kill this guy when I see him. You know, seven. I'm thinking I'm gonna kill this guy. Always had that memory. I always, always. Um, see my story like the the movie City of Gods, the the, mm-hmm. the kid with the camera. Yeah, I feel like I always documented everything, and nobody, nobody in my family ever talks about. It. I've, I was always in these spots where I seen a lot of things in the family that nobody ever talks about. And you're just recording it as a kid. Everything. Was there a funeral? Yes, there was a funeral, and I remember them calling names, and it was the worst thing ever, man. They, they like they were like. Charlie Wiggins, and that's me. Car two. To and line up in the funeral procession. To get inside of one of the cars. Yeah. The limos. Yeah. I never liked limousines after that. Okay. Never. Never liked limousines after that. And then later on, that's when I became an entertainer, and they would go, do you guys want a limo or a van? I was like, a van for sure. Coming up, Raphael talks about substance abuse and its role in the deaths of two of his other brothers, including one who died of a heroin overdose. 
I just always thought about, did he know before he approached this chemical that that was going to be the determining factor for his life, that he was never going to be able to get out of it? And I don't, and I always wondered that about a lot of people. I mean, you've seen so many people, you know, walk into rapid fire, and but they see everybody else falling down, just doing it. Why? Why would you do it? Hey, it's Anna, popping in to ask you a favor. As you've heard me say on the show, we are in a period of transition with our production due to budget cuts. We are investigating possible new ways of moving forward, but we do know that by the end of this year, how we've made this show at WNYC for the last nine and a half years, that's coming to an end. And one thing I've noticed about being in transition is that it's easy to spend most of your energy focusing on figuring out what's next, in my head at least. And then there's my body that reminds me that it has feelings of its own about what's ending. I notice like a deep pang of anxiety or a feeling of sadness that just comes over me or an instinct to hold tight and try to figure out how any of this is happening. So the team and I want to honor that part of this transition, about what we've built together, what we feel so proud of, and the parts of that that are ending. So here's the favor. We are collecting voice memos about what our show, Death, Sex, and Money, has meant in your life. Maybe it's an episode you heard that changed the way you were approaching something essential or got you through something tough. Maybe it's broader than that that you started listening to the show when your life looked one way and we've been with you while it took on totally different shapes. Tell us about your relationship to the show and what's happened in your life in the past nine and a half years while we've gotten to be a part of it. Record a voice memo and send it to us at deathsexmoney at wnyc.org. Whether you're a longtime listener or someone who's just found us more recently, we may use your voice memo at events and episodes that we're planning for the end of this year. If I were to record one today, I would talk about how I started making this show when I was recently divorced, 33 years old, and in a new relationship that I was just figuring out. I was living in a one-bedroom apartment in Brooklyn and making a career change from covering politics to making a show that was more broadly focused on our emotional lives. Now, I'm 43, married to my husband, Arthur, the person I was figuring out that relationship with, mom to two kids living in California, and having been through a number of transitions in my work life, like the people I work with have changed and the way I work has too. I now work almost exclusively from home when I used to be in an office and a community of coworkers every day. And hearing people's stories, your stories, then and now, they make me feel rooted and connected and challenged and accompanied in a way I have really needed. And words and phrases that people have told me in passing in interviews, many of them have become like mantras, these things I pull up when I need some guidance or centering. You have helped me so much. So send your voice memos about your life and what has changed in it while you've listened to Death, Sex, and Money. Record it and send it to us again at deathsexmoney at wnyc.org. I so look forward to hearing your voice memos and how this show has played a role alongside your many changes and transitions in life. Thank you so much. 
Hey, I want to let you know that Raphael and I talk next about a suicide in his family, which includes some graphic content. Fast forward two and a half minutes if you want to skip it. This is Death, Sex, and Money from WNYC. I'm Anna Sale. Something keeps calling me. I feel the burdens on me. Something keeps calling me. This is so heavy for me. Raphael Sadiq's latest record is called Jimmy Lee. It's named for his brother, who died of a heroin overdose when Raphael was in his mid-30s. By the time his brother Jimmy died, Raphael had long been careful about alcohol and drugs. He'd watched another older brother, Desmond, get addicted in the 80s and then die by suicide. He found himself smoking drugs and, like, maybe putting it inside of a joint. And he killed himself because he couldn't couldn't stop, and he was embarrassed— And I don't think the family made him feel that good about it. They were trying to, you know, give him this come to Jesus thing, but it didn't work. And he he, uh, had an argument with someone in our family about it, and he went home to my dad's house, and he took my dad's double-barrel shotgun. He shot his head off, completely off. And me and my dad and my brother cleaned it up. They took the body, but being the type of person my dad is, he was a janitor. He was the person who cleaned, so he didn't call the chemical people. We actually cleaned it up. I'm sorry. Yeah. When that that cleaning cleaning the room sounds like another moment where you were yeah filming it, like watching mm-hmm. it, observing it. Um, how do you? How did you grieve as a as a young man? What do you remember? Did you cry? No, I didn't cry. I just I I think I never dealt with it. You know, we don't. You know. Black people don't go get therapy. They just don't. They just think they, <laughs> they just think they could deal with everything. Or you don't even know to even ask, you know. But I just dealt with it. We I just cleaned it up. And the weird part, I could smell it for months and months and months because we didn't wear any face mask, you know. And when you drink water and the, the glass cover your nose, you could just smell blood, mm. you know, for months and months and months. And still no therapy mm. for you. No, I think my therapy was probably all this music that I've been doing. I've been thinking about it lately, but I think it music was my therapy. It was. It had to be. Well, there's nothing you can do. Well, there's nothing you can say. Because everything just ain't going to go your way. If you're feeling kind of strange and you want to lay it down, and it's hard for you to keep your feet on solid ground, you better keep on can you describe for me the space where you make music most? What's it look like? It's a huge live room that you can record a 40-piece orchestra in. There's a, a Yamaha grand piano sitting there. I'll start a song from sitting on the grand piano. I love piano because the notes ring so long that you can try and figure out where you should go next and if it makes you feel good. Um, There's a... Uh, a rack to your left that has over 35 snare drums, mood lights in the air in a circle, look like Star Wars at the top, 30, 40 guitars and basses sitting around them, and a huge glass window that looks out into the studio. Like, it would be like going to like a, 
one of the most beautiful places you can ever record in. I'm, I, I had a chance to have Stevie Wonder in my studio a few times, and Stevie says to me, he said, how does it feel to have your own beautiful studio away from all that bullshit out there? That's the first time I heard Stevie Wonder curse. Like, whoa. <laughs> I'm like, did he just curse? I heard Stevie curse. <laughs> yeah, but, yeah, but, and, but. How does it feel? Great. Do you have a name for your studio? Blakesley. What's that name mean? Blakesley is the name of the street my studio is on. So when I bought the building, <clears throat> I think my mortgage was like $10,000 a month. So I didn't have any time to be all cute and be trying to name it Paisley Park. <laughs> I, was, I dropped the drum machine on the desk, got the key, and started making music. They were like, what's the name of the studio? I was like, what's the name of the street? Blakesley Recording Studio. <laughs> Bam. That was it. He's still paying on it. It's paid for. Congratulations. Thank you. This place is crowded. I feel like your, um, in my life, your music was very uh, important to me in figuring out sexiness. Like, like I can picture being in my bedroom in West Virginia when I'm 12 listening to your music. <laughs> um, I want to ask about romance for you. Okay. You're 53? Yes. How, how big a role does like a romantic life play in your life right now? Huge. Very like because I, I was I figured out I was I dated someone for I dated I'll say her name her name is Carolyn Cristiano she deserves that I think I dated Carolyn for twelve years she likes to say fifteen <laughs> yeah but she didn't really want to be married she wasn't a, a pressure type of girl she just she like Marvin Gaye said the vows shouldn't read we should stay together to death do us part. We should, they should be rewrote. They should be, we should try. So she wasn't into marriage. And I was like, cool. So. <laughs> <laughs> works. It works. <laughs> um, perfect. So, yeah, I think it, I think I was married in my mind. I was married to music because I found music in my room in East Oakland on 94th. And the girls in my life were mistress at the time. Hmm. You know, they were they were second. Even though I would never say that, I I never liked when guys would say, you know, music is first in my life and my girl's second. My music is everything. I never wanted to sound like that. I never told anybody that. Even though, I guess it was. You know, it's the only thing that I never broke up with. I broke up with a ton of girls. I've never broke up with music. Are you a single man now? Yeah, I'm single now, but I, I, I don't want to be in... I do want something... Somebody I could just kind of just come home to, talk to, laugh with. Somebody that doesn't want something from you for a material thing. It's kind of hard now because everybody can, you know... My mom always told me, she said, you know, Ray, make sure you get your girl that just... They has something. My mom used to always want me to date Janet Jackson or Whitney, or Whitney Houston. <laughs> Don't be dating them girls that, like, you know, if you get sick or something, they're going through your pocket looking for, you know, five cents because they can't even afford to buy butter. I just thought That's good advice. Yeah, it's really good advice. My mom is no joke. (laughs) She had it down. 
How much do you get to see your mother now? She's just in Sacramento. I just have to jump on a flight and go see her. But now I, I see her like at least once every two weeks. And she's 87, and she FaceTimes me all the time. And she has this fish fry she does on Friday, and I don't even I don't eat fried food unless I go home because that would upset her if I didn't eat her fish, her catfish on Friday, which is so good. Then I'm, I'm like, okay, can we do it on Saturday too? Mama was worth more than gold. And she always tried to tell me this world is strange, so strange, so strange, my dear. You know it really hurts inside, yeah. Raphael's father, Charles, whom he was named for, died a few years ago. He had heart failure and dementia. And Raphael was right by his side when he went. The funny thing about him, he loved to hear us play music and play guitar, but when he was about to go and he couldn't remember anything, I tried to play this blues song for him, and he looked at me like he wanted to kill me. He did not want to hear Hoochie Coochie Man on the way out. Hmm. He looked at me and frowned. (laughs) (laughs) He remembered, like, nah, this is not a good record to be listening to right now. You turn that one off. No, he was just, uh, he was great all the way, and... He did such a great job with me. It was almost like he never died. You feel like that? That's how I feel. So I I felt I wasn't really sad. I didn't even want to see him. I didn't even look at him in his coffin because I didn't want to remember him like that. And he wasn't really about funerals, anything like that. He didn't like them. So I I didn't go up to the front. I I actually left a little early. I spoke. I had something to say. Then I, I went to get something to eat. And then I went to the studio. It's interesting to me that after seeing your brother up close after he'd been shot and your other brother after he'd shot himself, like you you chose to to control what visuals you had when your father passed. Yeah, I just I just never like I'm not scared of death or anything like that. I just don't like the ceremony of uh of funerals. It's just I like the New Orleans-type funerals, you know, when they just marching down the second-line bands. Every, boom, boom, boom. I like that. I just feel like the American funeral is just it's out of style to me. You know, my dad was had way more style than that. I'm like, you know, but I couldn't be the, the brother that's, okay, we're going to freak this funeral out. We're going <laughs> to fly this one out. Dad's going to be like, it's going to be no coffin. We're going to have an 8 by 10 Dad's guitar and his Fender Tweed amp in there. They would have lost it. But that's the way he, he would have wanted to rock. But I couldn't, you know, I'm, I'm the baby boy. I couldn't go in there suggesting all these different things. So I just, I just made my own visual. That's Raphael Sadiq. His group, Tony, 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 is currently touring and will be playing their final show on November 17th in San Francisco. If you'll be out in the Bay, get your tickets now before they're sold out. And we talked about suicide in this episode. If you need to talk to someone about suicidal thoughts or about how to help someone you love whom you believe may be in danger, please call 988 to talk to a trained counselor. Death, Sex, and Money is a listener-supported production of WNYC Studios in New York. This episode was produced by me, Katie Bishop, and Ellie McKay. The rest of our team is Liliana Maria Percy Ruiz, Zoe Azule, Lindsay Foster-Thomas, and Andrew Dunn. The Reverend John Delore and Steve Lewis wrote our theme music. Subscribe to our weekly newsletter if you haven't already. I write a weekly essay there, 
And as we've told you, our show is in transition here at WNYC, and we're sharing updates about the future of the show there, along with other things the team and I are thinking about. Sign up to get it every week at deathsexmoney.org slash newsletter. And back in 2019, Raphael told me he was ready for a steady romance. But he told me he's realistic about what his body in his 50s is up for. I seen Chris Tucker one day, and the first joke he told, he said, you know, that's how you know you're getting older when a girl calls and she like, can I come over? And you're like, well, like, you can come over, but we ain't having sex. <laughs> I'm like, that's the difference now. I, I got important things to do tomorrow. I'm not just, you know, I'm just not about to just kill my back for you. I got to love you to be doing this exercise. I'm Anna Sale, and this is Death, Sex, and Money from WNYC. 